As children, we all learnt about counting tree rings. Our parents revelling in the fact of teaching us a nature lesson and a maths lesson combined. We'd count the rings and know the age of the tree, and that the wider rings meant a better year's growth than the narrower rings. But, like, so what? Well, if you're a scientist who actually studies such things, a dendrochronologist, you can find patterns within the rings that reveal insights into the climate and atmospheric conditions long ago. But one scientist at Queen's University Belfast was studying the tree rings of ancient Irish oaks when he came across a set of rings that were, well, puzzling. It was almost like the trees were trying to tell us something or tell me something. And I felt myself to be in the position of a spokesperson for the Irish Oaks. And uh, that's what I've tried to do, is publicise the, the messages that I thought they were telling us. Professor Mike Bailey is that scientist, and the unusual tree ring patterns he discovered dated back to the mid-500s AD. They seem to tell a story of a mysterious climate event. But what could that event have been? Mike threw himself into the mystery, and very soon his investigations took on the air of a noir-style detective story, where he pondered puzzling clues, he chased up curious leads and tested unusual hypotheses. And over the course of these investigations, the trees whispered to Mike about many things. About climate change and environmental catastrophes and even about the nature of the cosmos. And they gave him an insight into what might be one of the biggest cover-ups of the Irish medieval age. You're listening to the Almanac of Ireland, by the way. A mix and gather of various odd or intriguing stories from this island of ours. This idea of realising that old trees had knowledge, uh, am I right in thinking that came about in the 1980s, really, that there was a big focus on it? Well, we had spent the 70s building a long tree ring chronology back 7,000 years. And because of having this long tree ring chronology, it became apparent after a while that we had a record of what the trees had thought of their growth conditions. In other words, from year to year, you, know, you get wide rings, you get narrow rings. We assumed wide was good for the trees, though what that means to humans, who knows? Similarly, uh, there were bad conditions. But what eventually happened in the 80s was that I discovered a series of very extreme events. We saw time after time that at exactly the same point in time, multiple trees put on their narrowest growth rings. Now, an oak can live for several hundred years, so for them to agree that this year was somehow significant to all of them, you thought, hmm, so how bad were things? So I spent from the mid-80s onwards trying to understand what had caused these events. Thinking things like big volcanic dust veils causing climatic downturn. There, were, there was some evidence from Greenland Ice course to suggest that might be a, a way of going. But the real turning point was when I started studying a big double event at 536 AD and 540 AD. And 
I gradually discovered that it was showing up in tree ring patterns from around the world. In other words, it was, it was the first known global event. So something happened between 536 AD and 540 AD that took over the whole planet and the trees remembered it? The trees remembered it, yeah. And they remembered it as very, very bad. <laughs> the easiest way to put it. Now, people had already discovered that there was a big dust veil in, uh, in 536. They called it a dry fog. That's how it was described in classical literature. The sun was dim and they inferred that that was a volcanic event. This is because the, a volcano spews up dust into the air and some of it's acid and it falls into the ice, is that why? It spews out lots of sulphur and the sulphur hydrolyzes and comes down as weak sulfuric acid and you get these quite discrete layers in the Greenland ice cap. So they can literally count back from the present day for tens of thousands of years. The problem for me was that was all right for 536, but there was no record of anything at 540, and yet 540 was clearly worse in the Irish trees than 536. So why if it was volcanic, is there no acid in the Greenland ice at that date? And that was a, a sort of a turning point. Because there was no scientific records to explain this massive global event that affected trees all over the world, Mike turned to written records, historical accounts from the period, to see what they had to say. And this is where things became very puzzling indeed. Just to give you one example, the Irish Annals, there's no entry for the year 540. And you're thinking, strange. And then even stranger, I discovered just by chance in a history of the Popes published in 1750. And it said 539, the following year, nothing happened worthy of notice. <laughs> Which to me was like a red rag to a bull. You know, that's, you know, here we have a global event of some kind. And they're telling you there's nothing to see here, move on. Nothing move, to see move here. On. Mm-hmm. So, so it, the implication is whatever had happened didn't suit uh, people in power. But the people in power at the time, at least the people in power of written historical records, were Christian monks. So why would they want to cover up a huge climate phenomenon that affected the entire world? And what on earth could that event have been? Mike developed a theory. It seemed obvious to me that if you've got a global event involving loading of the atmosphere and it's not due to volcanic activity, then the next most likely cause is something to do with comets. In other words, comet debris arriving into the atmosphere at very high velocity and exploding and loading the atmosphere with material. As we know, there were no historical records from that year to consult, so Mike had to look elsewhere for proof. To mythology. I came to this as a complete outsider. I had never liked mythology. I would have been dismissive of, let's call them, fairy tales. But these fairy tales revealed an interesting correlation. 
The year that the legendary British King Arthur died was recorded as being around 540 AD, the same year as the crippling climatic event that the historical record seemed to gloss over. And as he researched even deeper, Mike found evidence that Arthur could be a manifestation of the Celtic god Lu. And when you discover Lu, you basically have your answer. The Celtic god Lu, also known as Lu La Vada, Lu of the Long Arm, is one of the most important gods of Irish mythology. He's associated with the Harvest Festival Lunasa. And he's also the father of the mythical warrior Cúchulainn, who transforms into a terrifying monster during the frenzy of battle. But what Mike finds most interesting is the description of Lu's appearance. In one legend, he's described as being a man, fair and tall, with a great head of curly yellow hair and carrying a spear. In other stories, Lu's radiance is compared with that of the sun. And there's one myth in particular that might contain a hidden reference to Lou's cosmic origins. It goes like this. The Irish king Bress comes out and says to his druids, why is the sun coming up in the west today when every other day he comes up in the east? And the druids say, oh, that it were the sun. In other words, we'd rather have the sun than this thing. That's Lou of the long arm. So think about it, something's coming up in the west as bright as the sun with a long arm. Well, what else can that be other than a comet? So in a single bound, I went from, who's this guy, Arthur, to, oh, he's associated in the literature with Cucullin and Lou, and Lou's clearly a comet god. But the comet reference doesn't stop there. Because Cucullin is the rebirth of Lou. He's not actually the son of Lou, he's the rebirth. In other words, he's Lou back again. And you're left going, well, there's your answer. It's a return of the comet or or another comet. Maybe the same one, because comets do go on an orbital pattern, don't they? Well, the the logic would be it's it's probably the same one. So you think O'Cullen could have been this something from the sky, a force from the sky, a comet or some... I think the way you would have to look at it is... These stories are really made up about things people witnessed in the sky, not actual battles on the ground. Whoa, why did no one ever mention this to me growing up? That our myths and sagas could actually contain insight into events from eons ago. That's, that's life-changing. Suddenly, those descriptions of Cúchulainn on the battlefield take on a whole new life. How a jet of blood spouted from his head, forming a magic mist of gloom. Actually, wait there, I'll, I'll read you a bit from the time. Taller, thicker, more rigid, longer than the mast of a great ship, was the perpendicular jet of dusky blood which out of his scalp's very central point shot upwards and then was scattered to the four cardinal points. He's described as having three distinct heads of hair, with his gullet wide open and flakes of fire streaming from his throat. 
One eye is engulfed in his head so that tis a question whether a wild heron could have got at it, while the other eye protruded suddenly and rested upon the cheek. Was all of this just a way of describing a climactic event that happened in 540 AD? Like, the overall description of Cúchalán in the Táinbó Cúlna is a shining source of light, too bright in its blinding brilliance for men to look at. Mike says, though, that he has another piece of evidence to support this theory. If you pass me that book with a pen on it... Yeah. You see... What people haven't allowed for is that in the 19th century, people studied comets through telescopes, large numbers of professional astronomers, and they drew what they saw. Now, you've got Cucullin with one eye retreating into his head and the other eye coming out onto his cheek and his gullet opening and all the rest of it. There's a picture of Donati's comet from 1858. That's a photograph of the drawing of the comet. This is what the astronomer was seeing night after night when he was recording this oh, comet. So it looks, it's like the tip of a bullet, really, with a strong beacon of light. Or the light goes into the centre of this big cone and it forms two little holes, which does, and this big gaping sort of nostril time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which does look very like a... And remember, in the story, it says that Cucullin had three layers of hair. Well, there's another view of Donati's comet. And that's another drawing of the comet from the 19th century. And again, as you say, there are three, what is almost, crowns Mm -hmm. around it. Now, remember, these comets in the 19th century were a long way away. This is what you could see through a telescope. Mm. If people in earlier times in Ireland were describing a comet like this, then it must have been very close. And that, of course, would be the interesting bit. Because when a comet is close to the Earth, the danger is that we run through the trail of debris behind it and get bombarded. So Cúchulain, or this comet, would have come roaring through the sky, shocking everyone, making everyone question everything, and then... After that, there would have been this climactic effect, this, this effect on the growth. Well, and that's what the story and the description appears to be telling us. Oh, OK. Now, this is all a lot to take on. The pieces in his puzzle seem to add up, but it throws up so many other questions. And there's still one thing we haven't even dealt with. At the start of this conversation, Mike had a theory about why written history failed to include anything about the comet that had likely appeared in the sky in 540 AD and caused such devastation. The implication is whatever had happened didn't suit uh, people in power. As we said, the people in power and the record keepers at the time were the Christian clergy. They had brought writing and record keeping with them when they came to Ireland a century earlier. And the early 6th century was an interesting time in the church's history. Christianity was slowly gaining ground. But by 536 AD, the year the volcanic dust veil caused a climate catastrophe, the number of Irish converts to Christianity seemed to increase exponentially. 
You're saying we turn to Christianity because of a weather event, because the old pagan gods were suddenly not giving us good harvest. They were giving us these terrible, almost nuclear winters. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's really up to other people to argue about what the nature of the, the issue was. I'm just saying <laughs> it looks to me like you go from being partly Christian to being fully Christian, probably at that point in time. And the part of the reason for saying that is that if you look at 19th century historical books of the church in Ireland, all the foundations, the big pulse of foundations are all in the 540s. So it's absolutely amazing to see that that was all written down, you know, time wow. after time. So it's like all the, the evangelical churches that you'll find in Africa after sudden difficult years, or even in Belfast after the Troubles. All of these small churches pop up because the old world order didn't give them what they needed anymore. Yeah, it and could I, well be that big environmental events will cause religious undertones. So this was nothing to do with the power of Jesus Christ and the New Testament. It was just, it was weather. We, we got scared of the bad weather and our old gods didn't help us. So we clung on to this new... Is that not contentious? You know? I'm, I'm just picking up on what you're saying. I'm thinking about the repercussions of what well, you're saying. Well, I, yeah, I think the weather event drove us to Christianity. So perhaps the opposite of that is true too. If the people of the mid-6th century realised that the happenings on earth were controlled not by a mystical invisible god, but by something tangible and natural like a comet, they might have abandoned this new religion, Christianity. And that's why the annals that were created in the monasteries under the, the Christian auspices wouldn't have mentioned them because they weren't claiming that their new god had created this, what had been this force in the sky, this big bright force. So they just didn't want it mentioned at all. Well, that, that's your interpretation. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an easy deduction to make. So our myths could actually be trying to convey information to us? Well, if you think of the people who compose these myths as being the Druid class, then uh, if they thought it was important, they may well have tried to encode enough information that th there's a hint in there of you know, maybe you need to know this, you know, that these things can actually happen. But there's a twist to that. Go on. Because there's a very strange entry in the year 539 in the annals, and it's the death of Abacook at Lewes Fair at Telltown. Now, when you read that, you think, oh, what's that about? And it specifically says about the beheading of Abacook. Now, Abacook is not an Irish name, pretty obviously, but it clearly is the Old Testament book of Habakkuk that's being referred to, which is a three-chapter book, and the third chapter has a beheading motif in it. So what your priest or monk was doing when he put that gloss into the annals was referring you to chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk. But of course, if you go back to chapter 3 of Habakkuk and, and read it, you have a description of a terrible entity in the sky causing mayhem on the ground, which is, of course, exactly what seems to me to have been happening around 540. Right, this is a code, this is like some sort of detective story now. So writing came to Ireland with the monks, and in the monasteries were these scriptoria, where the monks were copying Bibles, but then also would keep little one-sentence lines of the year, like, almost like a tweet that encapsulated yeah, yeah. the year. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that this tweet was beautifully composed, it had as much nuance and hints in it mm -hmm. as a sort of meme in a modern tweet now. 
God, you're blowing my mind here, Mike. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, of course, these are all just theories, suppositions. And Professor Mike Bailey has often been challenged by archaeologists and historians, but golly, his ideas are alluring. They make me want to dive back into the mythology to see what else could be gleaned from all those outlandish tales. But for that, we're going to have to wait. I've already taken up enough of your precious time. You've been listening to The Almanac of Ireland. You're going to find plenty more episodes on the RT Player or wherever you tune into for your podcast fixation. The Almanac of Ireland has been presented by me, Moncom McGann, and produced by Colette Kinsella. It was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and is a Red Hair Media production for RT Radio. Mm-hmm.